0: Well, let's look together at the book of Genesis, chapter 13. Genesis 13. You know, I've been thinking about Abraham. Um, I think most of my life, as I've thought about Abraham, I've uh, you know, pretty much just thought of his old man. and it's pretty, pretty tough to connect with him. Because for most of my life, I've not been an old man. And uh, I know what you're thinking, I'm not an old man now. But uh, I'll tell you what, I feel like more and more (laughs) that it's happening. (laughs) Something about uh, getting into the the decade that starts with a five, starts to do things to your body. Uh, Anyway, but I can relate more and more to Abraham and just realize, not so much physically, but spiritually, this, uh, this great patriarch that we look at in the book of Genesis um, really teaches us that day after day of life, we have to have faith in God, a lot of faith, because so much of what God promises us is future, and Abraham is the, the epitome of this kind of faith, this kind of believing that um, we walk by faith here in this life knowing that the majority of the things that God promises us uh, come in the next life and not in this one. Uh, But it's okay because thankfully the Lord gives us tangible encouragement here and now that kind of pushes us along toward that uh, elusive, untouchable future that we all long for. Abraham needed that encouragement as well. He wasn't just this tower of faith that uh, never needed to be pushed along. He needed to be pushed, and the way that God pushed him is the way that God pushes us and gives us the encouragement to take the next step each day. We're going to see that in Genesis 13 and 14, so we'll do our best to try to work our way through most of these uh, these two chapters here as we continue in the life of Abraham. You remember the last time we looked at Abraham's life in Genesis 12, we saw that God called him to leave everything familiar in Ur, which is basically the area of the Persian Gulf, and to follow the fertile crescent up and around and then down into the land of Canaan. And he arrived in Canaan, and the Canaanites were living in Canaan, and God told him, this is the land that I'm going to give you. And Abraham believed God. And um, it's just a great example of the, the great faith that Abraham had. But also is a great example of what happened right after that. There was a famine in the land. And Abraham, the great man of faith, struggled and went down to Egypt and uh, told half-truths about his wife, Sarah, says, she's my sister, in order to try to save his skin, And so we learn some great lessons from Abraham's life that uh, a life of true faith can still struggle and can even sin. And that doesn't mean that you're not a true believer in the Lord. Or being a true believer in the Lord doesn't mean that you're not going to have famines. Those things are going to come. So in Genesis 13, we pick up the story right there where we left off in Genesis 12 and uh, it continues to progress and give us some great encouragement to push us along. Look at verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife, and all that belonged to him, and Lot with them. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had had made there formerly, and Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So the last time we saw Abraham in Genesis 12, um, God had led him to the promised land, but there was a famine. So Abram, as we mentioned, made that poor decision to go down to Egypt and finding out the hard way that that was a bad decision. So Abraham goes back to the uh, promised land and uh, dwells in the Negev, and then we're told he goes up to Bethel and Ai. Let me uh, share my screen here and show you a map here. You're probably familiar with this area. So, can you see this here? Dave, give me a nod if you can. Okay, good. So, this is the area where Abraham was, and I think I can annotate this This is the area of Bethel and Ai. Nope, it's not going to let me do it. That's fine. I will just zoom in a little bit here then. If it will let me do that. So when Abraham came into the land initially, he came and was at Shechem and then worked his way all the way down and headed toward Egypt. Then came back up this blue line where it says the way of the patriarchs to the area where he was at first at Bethel and Ai. And this is the area we're about to see the the conversation between Lot and Abraham or Abram. And it says here Lot to Sodom. You can see that where they are standing here at Bethel and Ai, they have a straight shot to look down toward Jericho. Right down this valley here, they could look down and see the, uh, the valley of the Jordan, which is what it'll be called. All right, so back to the text here. Um, so basically, they had a famine in chapter 12, and here in chapter 13, they find themselves in, in a sense, a very similar situation, except now it's not famine for people, it's famine for flocks. Now they're they're basically facing the same thing again. The land can't sustain them. So what are they going to do? Head back to Egypt again? No, this time Abraham decides, you know what? I'm going to trust God. Look at how Abraham responds in verse 8. Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me if to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. So we were told in the previous verses that the Canaanite and the parasite were dwelling in the land. It's uh, just like we saw in chapter twelve. Remember when Abraham came to the land that that verse is just kind of stuck in there and says, now the Canaanite was living in the land. Well, this is a reminder that the land promised to Abraham wasn't Abraham's yet. It was still belonging to the Canaanites. And so, this is sort of a reminder here that Abraham is making this magnanimous gesture in faith, because he doesn't own any of the land. And he tells Lot, he says, look, we can't stay together. Obviously, we need to separate. And I'm going to give you first choice. You pick where you want to go and then I'll go wherever you you are not. It's a magnanimous gesture. Abraham chose to walk by faith, trusting God. What did Lot choose? What was the basis of his choice? Well, it wasn't faith, it was sight. Look at verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. The question we always want to ask ourselves is, how will this decision that I'm about to make affect me spiritually? And and that's really the first principle, is a question. You always want to ask yourself when making a decision, how is this going to affect me spiritually? Now, obviously, it would bless him financially. This is why he made the decision he did. This was going to bless his flocks because the the, the Jordan Valley was well-watered and Lot says, that's what I want. And so he took it. But he didn't ask the question, how will this benefit me or affect me spiritually? You know, there's... A few principles that I've learned in my life that uh, continue to rattle around in my head, both from my own experiences as well as those that lives that I've seen, both good lives and lives that have really, really struggled and failed, uh, both friends and family. And the prin- the principle that uh, is foremost in my mind so so much these days is asking the question, how will this decision affect me spiritually? Because so often, when the need arises that's a financial need, or a health need, or a vocational need, or uh, the need for a church, or whatever the need is, we typically want to make that decision based on what that need is, and that's it. So, how does this benefit me financially? Financially is how I'm going to decide, etc. But the reality is we have to ask always a second question. And that is, how will this affect me spiritually? Because the quality of our spiritual life is the quality of our life. The quality of our spiritual life is the quality of our whole life. If we're walking with God and yet don't have a lot of money we can still have peace and joy. But if we have a lot of money and we're not walking with God, then there ain't ain't peace and joy. Not all the money in the world can buy the true heart satisfaction that comes only from a deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. Lot failed to ask that question. And as we'll see as the text goes on, he suffered for it. But his example is here so that we don't have to do that. Abraham, on the other hand, had a very different mindset. He understood that God was going to give him all the land in the future, even though he didn't own one bit of it at the time. And so he said, look, Lot, you choose whatever part of the land you want to, to go to, and I will I will trust God with the leftovers. Notice also that the, uh, the text here says... It's uh, in my NASB, it's an M-dash. There, there are two M-dashes between this phrase in verse 10, which is sort of a, a parenthesis uh, grammatically. But it says uh, that the valley of the Jordan was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord. In other words, like the Garden of Eden. The the valley of the Jordan, where the Jordan River is, was well watered and it looked like the Garden of Eden. And then this parenthesis This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Sodom and Gomorrah has not yet been destroyed, but we're told here in verse 10, it was going to be, and it was going to be destroyed by the Lord. So we are clearly told here in this verse that Lot was making a poor choice. And those of you who have been to Israel are familiar with the area around the Dead Sea, which is this valley. Nothing lives down there. Can you imagine that area looking like the Garden of Eden? Before God destroyed it, we're told here in Genesis, that's what it looked like. And in fact, it was the best of the land, which is why Lot chose it. And now, incidentally, it's the worst of the land. Uh, it's neat to see, though, in the as you look through the rest of the scriptures, that in the kingdom of God, when Abraham gets the land, it's going to revert. And it's going to be once again looking um, lush and beautiful. And the Dead Sea will even have fish in it, Where fishermen, from En Gedi to, I forget what the other area is, but the whole breadth of that western shore is going to be blessed once again by God. But Lot was making a bad decision. Abraham was making a good decision because he was trusting the Lord. And so Abraham gets the leftovers. Think about this in your own life for just a moment. Um, it's, it's easy to put ourselves in Abraham's position because we feel like him a lot when, when there's strife. Like with his case, there's strife with a family member. Uh, perhaps in your case, it's with a friend or with somebody uh, from your past or from church. But strife is part of our lives, isn't it? People that we love, we're going to lock horns with them. And how do we do it? Do we basically just dig in and decide, you know what, I'm going to win this thing? Or, like Abraham, do we say, you know what, I'm going to let you choose. I'm going to let you get the best of what you're wanting out of this, and I'm going to trust God with with, uh, what's left over. That's hard. But that's how unity is often uh, accomplished. Not by rolling over and letting people walk on you, though sometimes uh, like the lord jesus in a sense did that in others but basically he's saying you know what i'm going to defer in this situation i'm going to let you choose what you want and you're going to get the best and i'm going to trust god with the rest so often in a relationship that is one of the great keys to harmony is not this 50-50 stuff because honestly we never think we always think we're doing 55 and the other person doing 45, and, and then vice versa. So nobody ever thinks they're doing their half. They think, they think that they're doing more than half, and we think the same thing. The reality is everybody does 100%. And if my goal is to do 100%, then I'm not worried about what percentage you're doing, because I'm just figuring I'm, I'm doing the whole thing. <laughs> this is what Abraham did. He was magnanimous, and he gave the best to Lot and trusted God with the leftovers. It's hard to do that. It's like what uh, in Proverbs thirty verse fifteen. It's it says that the leech has two daughters. Give, give. That's uh, that's kind of how I felt with my two daughters, you know, <laughs> growing up. But this is true. Our lives are so often giving, aren't they? And so seldom it seems we feel emotionally receiving. But Abraham was able to do that. But here's the good thing. When we choose to walk by faith and not by sight, when we decide to be selfless in strife, where is the consolation for everything we've given up? I mean, obviously, the other person gets the benefit. But, but where is the consolation for us when we're struggling with this? Look at the next verse. Because God gives us some great insight here with Abraham that he also gives with us. Verse 14, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. I like these verses because God basically tells two actions for Abraham to do. First of all, he says, look at the land, and then he says, walk in the land. Look in the land, verse 15, north, south, east, west. Why? God says, because I will give it to you. Then verse 17, walk in the land, through its length and breadth. Again, all of it. Why? God says it a second time, because I will give it to you. Twice, Abraham is reminded The land that you just gave away magnanimously to Lot is your land. In fact, in the future, I'm going to give it to you. So, Abraham, who had just given away the best part of the land, is reminded of God's promise that one day he will receive all of it. God offers hope to Abraham, and he tells him to take a walk. I like that because sometimes it's helpful to just walk around. It it wasn't enough for Abraham to just be told, one day the land will be yours. God says, go look at it. Walk around, experience it, smell it, feel it. Let your senses physically be involved in anticipation of what I will give you in the future. And I like that because God is giving Abraham hope with more than just words on the page. God was giving him hope uh, and also something tangible to do in the meantime. And I think if we are alert, we will see those same things in our lives. Uh, God gives us promises for the future, no doubt. But what do we do in the meantime? If we're alert, like Abraham was told to be alert, look around, walk around. If we are alert, we will see some tangible evidences of God's grace in our lives as well, which give us hope, sort of as a down payment as it were, that there's more to come. A few examples in Scripture that I thought about uh, where God did this. You remember Joseph in Genesis, a little later on here in Genesis, Joseph would be told that he would rule over his family, he would rule over his brothers, that his dreams would come true. But Joseph found himself in an Egyptian prison, unfairly accused. How was he going to get hope from that situation? Well, the Lord gave Joseph a a correct interpretation of his cellmate's dreams. Remember that? And this would have encouraged Joseph that his own dreams would come true one day. You see what the Lord did? Even though Joseph's dreams hadn't yet come true God encouraged Joseph in the meantime with something small. Remember when David was being hunted and sought by King Saul, and uh, that that fool Nabal, who insulted David's men, David says, "You know what? Let's just go kill them all." And uh, Abigail stepped in and stopped, you know, and stopped uh, David. But then remember, after that, Nabal died. This was encouragement to David that there would be justice in the case of Saul one day as well. And even you think about our Lord Jesus' resurrection, his resurrection from the dead is encouragement to us that one day we will rise from the dead. So all of these examples, including Abraham, are examples that if we will look around and if we will be attentive to God's working in our lives. We will see some small things here and there that will give us hope, tangible hope, real hope that we can actually hold and touch, or like in Abraham's case, walk around and look at, that are evidence of of a future that's coming, but yet that is not here. So, another principle from Abraham's example here is that when strife arises, be generous because uh, because we can trust God for, for any loss. When strife arises, be generous, because we can trust God for any loss. I've had to do that a few times this week in my business. I don't know why uh, some customers have decided that this is the week that we're all going to get together and, uh, and get mad at Wayne. But I've had several customers this week who have said some things very hurtful. Uh, these are all customers who have just... Joined my membership site for like a week or something, but a small number of time. But one lady actually said, "I should be ashamed." These are her these are her words. You should be ashamed because I was charging uh, uh, money for people to see these videos that cost me thousands of dollars to produce. Um, I should be ashamed. And then another another guy said uh, some other things. Anyway, but boy, I tell you, they just hurt my heart. You know, I just, I just, I was, I actually read them right here at my computer where I'm talking to you. And I just thought, Lord, is this worth it? And I just had to back up and get a big picture perspective and say, you know what? In this case, I need to be generous. And uh, you just figure out what is the most generous way I can respond and just trust God with the loss. This is what Abraham did with Lot. And this is what we need to do in in relationships. Uh, sometimes people are going to take advantage of us and do us wrong. But you know what? God's got more to give us than that. We have to believe that because it's true. Well, let's keep going here in Genesis 14. And we won't read the first uh, few verses here. Let me just sort of set the scene and summarize these first 10 verses. But the first 10 verses of Genesis 14 basically talk about the kings of the Jordan Valley. Uh, they served a king named Kedar Laomer. Kedar Laomer. And they would served him for 12 years, and by that they basically sent tribute to him, which means sending money and produce every year, or he comes and he kills you. It's a pretty simple system. But the 13th year, they decided to rebel, and in the 14th year, Kedar Leomer came and uh, decided to conquer them. And conquer them, he did indeed. But notice what else he plunders. It's not just uh, all the, the physical things, but he also takes people, including Lot, who was living in Sodom. So look at verse 11, and let's pick the story up here. We read, Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. So when we last saw Lot, he had separated from Abraham and he took his possessions and his wealth and he went and lived in the rich valley here around Sodom. And uh, we're told that the two of them, when they divided, that that Abraham stayed in the hill country, basically, or went also down further south into the Negev area, uh, and then into the area of Hebron. And Lot is here in this wealthy valley that was also happened to be the one that was conquered by kedar Laomer. Abraham was not captured. Lot was captured. And the implication is if Lot hadn't been where Lot shouldn't have been, Lot wouldn't have been captured either. Look at verse 13. A fugitive came and told Abraham the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskol and brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318 and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. tell you what, Abram is the kind of uncle you want to have, isn't it? He came and he rescued Lot and uh, Abram could have said, you know what? Hey, Lot chose where to live. Lot gets to deal with his decision. But he didn't. He uh, he was gracious, and he uh, he went and he saved his nephew. Once again, let me share the screen and show you a um, a map as well as a photo here. So when we last saw the map, Lot had separated from... Uh, Abraham here at Bethel and Ai, and went down, and Sodom is most likely down at the southern end of the Dead Sea, right in this area. And so the kings, if I can uh, back out just a little bit here, let's see. The kings came, Kedarleomer came and conquered the, the area of the valley, and then uh, way up here in the north, which is off the screen, you can't see it, is the area of Dan. And, uh, of course, even north of Damascus, it's, it mentioned, it's mentioned. This uh, next picture, if I can get to it, is in Dan. In fact, uh, it's interesting that even that the, the book of Genesis refers to it as Dan, because Dan, as you know, is a, one of the Twelve Tribes. And so for it to be referred to here as Dan is probably a later addition, uh, either by Moses knowing that it was going to be called the area of Dan, or by uh, an editor under the inspiration of the Spirit later on. But anyway, this gate at Dan, if you were to go to tell Dan today in Israel, you would no doubt see this gate. This is a gate from the Middle Bronze Age, which is the age of Abraham. And often you'll be told, uh, I've heard most guides actually say that this is also called Abraham's Gate, because it dates to the same era, uh, Middle, Middle Bronze Era, as Abraham. But the reality is, Abraham was about 2000 BC, and this gate dates to 1800 BC, so a couple of hundred years later. You think, well, you know, that's like four thousand years ago. Isn't that close enough? Well, think of it this way: uh, is is the seventeen hundreds close enough for us? That's how much difference we're talking about in time. But even though this gate didn't date exactly to the time of Abraham, it may have been built over the gate of the time of Abraham. We don't know, but this gate dates to the general general time of Abraham, when Abraham went up as far as Dan and uh, rescued Lot. So it's kind of neat to, to see something that uh, is actually that old. So after the smoke settles, Abraham meets with these two kings and who had benefited from the victory, and these two kings are exact opposites. Let's, uh, let's look down at verse 17 now and uh, continue. It says, Then after his return from the defeat of Kedar Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Incidentally, let me just pause there. The king's valley, it doesn't, we're not told here or uh, in, in this particular text, but the king's valley is probably the Kidron Valley right beside Jerusalem, because we're going to be told here in a moment uh, that Melchizedek is king of Salem. So, probably in the Kidron Valley is where Abraham meets this king of Sodom. Verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all, meaning Abraham Gave Melchizedek a tenth of all that he had. So you've got two kings here standing in front of Abraham, or Abram. And one's the king of Salem, one's the king of Sodom. You could not have two different men. Uh, The king of Sodom, remember, is the king of the city where we're told that the men were wicked exceedingly before the Lord. And then here you have the king of Salem, or Melchizedek, the, uh, the area of Jerusalem, or which would be Jerusalem or Jebus later on in the scriptures, and he is told uh, to be priest and king of God Most High. The book of Hebrews will liken Melchizedek, one of the very few examples in scripture, of a type of Christ. So Melchizedek is really like a type of Jesus Christ. And then you've got uh, the king of Sodom standing there as well. So, two totally different men. And uh, Abraham accepted Melchizedek's blessing and gave him 10% of the spoil. This is actually the first example of tithing that we have in the Scripture. And it's interesting that the the principle here, or the example of tithing, is even before the law. So, we we really, it's tough to say, you know, we, we don't, we don't tithe because we're not under the law anymore when Abraham did it, even before the law. So there evidently is some principle of tithing even outside of the Mosaic law. Abraham takes this spiritual blessing and gives a monetary payment. But notice in verse 21, he refuses to take anything from the king of Sodom. Verse 21 The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So this isn't a prideful response on Abraham's part. This isn't Abraham saying, you know what, you ain't paying for anything for me. I'm picking up the check here. Uh this is a reference instead to Abram saying, I'm not gonna this is God's honor that is at stake. The Lord has made me rich. I'm not gonna take anything from you because I know what you would do. You would say, I've made Abram rich. And 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 we're not gonna have that. God gets all the glory here. God gets all the glory. And so Abram decides that if he is blessed, it would be unmistakably from the Lord God and not from the king of wicked Sodom. Uh, A final principle here, and it's, uh, it's a bit of a loose one, but I think it's still relevant, and that is this, that you can better recognize the worldly lures or the worldly traps when God's word is fresh in your mind. You can recognize the worldly traps when God's word is fresh in your mind. Abram had just been blessed by this this, uh, type of Christ, by Melchizedek, the priest of God uh, from from Salem or Jerusalem. And God had basically encouraged Abraham once again through Melchizedek and said, look, I've blessed you and I'm going to... uh, uh, how did, uh, how did Melchizedek refer to it? Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered you, your enemies, into your hand. Abram recognized that God was with him and that God continued to, to provide for him and encourage him. And uh, this enabled Abram to say, you know what? I, I don't need your stuff, king of Sodom. You keep it. I'm going to trust in the Lord and in the Lord alone. So you can better recognize worldly lures when God's Word is fresh on your mind. And I, I know we've talked about this in the past, but boy, it's so good to, good to be reminded of this, that um, our, our personal time with the Lord and His Word is so essential. Uh, you can probably see over my shoulder, I can't see my screen here, but over this shoulder right here, see this desk right here behind me? This is where I sit every morning when it's still dark and where I've sat for years, this is where I put together the, the messages for the marathon class and have my own quiet time. This is my favorite spot in the house. It is where God's Word opens up and I am able to to read His Word and be encouraged and to be prepared for the day. I hope that you have a spot like this in your house that, that is a place where you can open God's Word on a regular basis on a daily basis, and to, and to let it be fresh in your mind. Because if you do, then you will be better prepared to recognize the worldly lures in your life. But if you try to go it alone, like Lot did in Sodom, then uh, you're going to be influenced by, by, uh, by the world rather than by the Lord. And we'll see that more as, as uh, we get into the chapters that follow with Lot. But let me just repeat those principles that we've gone through in the text today. There's been several of them. But let me just uh, remind you before we pray. The first is this. The question you always want to ask is, how will this decision affect me spiritually? How will this decision affect me spiritually? Second, when strife arises, be generous and trust God with any loss. And then finally, you can better recognize worldly lures if God's word is fresh in your mind. I just love how the Bible is so practical that even in this ancient text of Abraham, we can find principles that are true right here for us in our day and in our struggles and in our trust as we walk with God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Abraham's example. Thank you for his learning of his mistakes in Egypt as he gets back into Canaan, that he's able to trust you and be generous with Lot. Thank you that we're also able to be encouraged to be generous with others and to allow you to make up for the difference of any loss in our lives, whether it's a customer or a friend or a family member, to allow generosity to be our default rather than selfishness. Thank you also that you give us these tangible expressions of our future hope. Give us an alertness and awareness to them that we would not just read the Bible in the mornings but or whenever we do, but you would also give us these tangible expressions of our hope, whether it's through an answered prayer that couldn't be a coincidence or even a scripture verse that we read that, that exactly fits the need of the day or a song that we hear on the radio, or uh, uh, a song that pops in our mind. Now, all of these are just not random acts, but rather your tangible expressions of being part of our daily life and giving us hope beyond the just the words on the page, but also hope in the here and now that you have not forgotten us, and like Abraham, that there is a future and a certain hope that we have to look forward to. Thank you also for this uh, reminder of our Lord Jesus in Melchizedek, the king of Salem, that one day our Lord Jesus himself will be king of Jerusalem and will rule this world with justice and equity, and we will uh, get to see him rule, and we will be ruling right underneath him uh, for a thousand years. What a glorious hope. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.